Hey guys, welcome to our 39th episode. Of course, we're the True Crime Couple. I'm Kay. And I'm John. So today we have a great show for you. But first, as always, we want to thank everyone for all of their reviews on iTunes, Podbean, and Stitcher. They were all so sweet. And of course, we always really appreciate the kind words. We definitely appreciate them more than, than the bad words. Oh, yeah. There hasn't been like a really bad review that's like kept me up at night in a while. So I'm, I'm really just grateful for that. That's nice, guys. Yeah. <laughs> we also had a lot of new Patreon subscriptions um, this month and recently. And that's probably because we just released an episode on the murder of the Richardson family, which was a really good episode. So if you're feeling generous and you want to donate to the show, you can get a backlog of all of our Patreon episodes on patreon.com slash truecrimecouple when you donate to us at any amount of money. So we appreciate everything from a dollar to two dollars to fifteen dollars. Anything, you know, you're being generous enough to give, we definitely appreciate. It also always helps us out a lot if you take a look at the amazing deals our sponsors always have set up for our listeners. That's what keeps the sponsors coming. So the sponsors for this week's episode are Vistaprint, Third Love, and Kopari. So now that we got all that business stuff out of the way, let's get this episode started. In the early 1970s, a protective initiative was put in place to protect children from predators. It was called Stranger Danger. This was constructed to make the public aware that there are people who only want to hurt your children, and you need to be constantly cognizant of those around you. However, this didn't work at all. It actually caused mass panic, creating a climate of fear and suspicion. It also averted parents' eyes away from those who are most likely to be hurting their children, those that they trust the most. Unfortunately, the family in this story is going to fall victim to one of the biggest manipulators that we have ever seen. Once he is let into this loving family, he is going to begin spinning his predatory web of deceit, blackmail, intimidation, and fear. This is a story of a loving family who, despite being infiltrated by a monster, survived to tell the tale as an unbroken unit. Police say the suspect, 31-year-old Jeffrey Dahmer, has confessed to the killings of 11 people whose remains were found in his apartment. We are all evil in some form or another, are we not? Lock your doors, lock your windows. If you have the ability to provide additional security devices, then by all means do so. The idea of this week's story comes from two sources. First, the insanely good documentary entitled Abducted in Plain Sight. We loved it. How good was that? It was amazing. It was infuriating and emotional, and we were just kind of captivated on the couch. Yeah, and I mean, everybody knows at this point, we're 39, we're about to be 39 episodes in, and everybody knows how I get when it comes to certain people. And I was just sitting there. I was, like, so pissed off. I like, know. <laughs> like, how could this, like, even be happening? But anyway. I We highly recommend, even, you know, if you listen to the whole episode, we promise that there's stuff that we are going to make sure that those who watch a documentary and read the book we're going to talk about know. We don't give everything away because, of course, we do always want to promote the authors from where we get all of these sources. So that documentary was incredible it's called abducted in plain sight and it's really just so candid with the families 
and you get to see the emotion and the sadness and the shame and it's it was one of the best true crime documentaries that I've seen in a long to, time. I would have to agree with that. And I think that I, I got to give the whole family credit yeah, like for going on, you know, being filmed and having their whole story told or retold. You know, it's and, uh, and it's being remarkable. so and being so truthful and so candid is really hard to do, but they did it. And it was uh, it was just amazing. There's also a book um, called Stolen Innocence that was published in 2004. And that's where we're also getting our information from. Like we said, we highly recommend you watch this documentary and read the book if you're really interested in the story. There's actually been, um, there's another documentary about this case called Forever Be. So that, if you're really interested, you can watch that one too. That came out before Abducted in Plain Sight, which was made in 2018. We promise you're going to be interested in this story. You're going to want to consume as much information as you can because... This is a crazy ride. Yeah, for sure. So our story began in 1972 in the town of Pocatello, a town that lies between both Bannock and Power County in southeast Idaho. It was home to the Broberg family. Bob Broberg owns a store in the center of town, and his wife, Marianne, stays at home and takes care of their three girls. The eldest Broberg girl at 11 years old was named Jan. Karen was the middle child, and the youngest was Susan. The Brobergs were very devout members of the Church of Jesus Christ of Latter-day Saints. In her spare time, Marianne led the choir at the local Mormon church. The three daughters of the Brobergs were loving girls, who were close in age and the best of friends growing up. However, this didn't mean that they had the same personalities. While Karen and Susan were quiet and shy, their older sister Jan was outgoing and vivacious. The Brobergs were falling very nicely into middle-class American happiness when Marianne met someone at church in June that would shake their faith and love to the core. His name was Robert Birchtold. Marianne could not wait to get home and tell her family about the Birchtolds. They had just moved to the area, and the husband, Robert, and wife, Gail, had five kids. And she was right. The two families became the best of friends. They were just so completely alike, and they clicked. They spent every weekend together the kids sleeping over each other's houses, spending vacations and holidays together. The family described that they were kind of one in the same, one giant family. And because the fathers were both named Bob, they began calling Robert Birchtold B. B began volunteering to pick the children up and drive them all to school every morning. They would all hop in the car and sing the whole way to school. And right before they got out, he made them all scream, It's going to be a great day. And then he would say goodbye to all of the Broberg and Birchtold children. That's just the way B was, though. He spent a lot of time with the kids. He played with them all the time. He was described by everyone 
as being that fun dad. But when he would say goodbye to everyone, and when he would play with the kids, he would always pay extra attention to one of them over all the others. Jan seemed to get all of the attention from B. He would always try and make her laugh, pose for pictures with her, take pictures of her, hug and tickle her. He had this nickname for her. He called her Dolly, his Dolly. Bob and Marianne Broberg were uncomfortable with the attention that B was paying to their daughter. They especially didn't like that he was taking pictures of her, asking her to kick her legs up as high as she can in her nightgown. But he was B, their best friend, and he would never hurt one of their children. I don't think any parent would even feel remotely comfortable with some dude taking pictures of their children. Like that. Like that. Yeah, that one picture in particular, they showed time and time again in the documentary, and it was just so disturbing. And it, and it is kind of sad that you really do have to be careful of the pictures that are out there of your children and that like people take of your kids, because what may seem innocent to you as a parent is not innocent to someone who is a, a predator. Right. It's kind of weird, too, because... <sighs> There's something about like, like '70s photographs that actually that make scare it extra me. creepy. Yeah, it, yeah. It like adds like a little <laughs> flare of scare. Yeah, it, yeah, it's the way that the process look oh, of, of it. Yeah, I know. But I think that this is just the innocence of the family, and it it gets brought up time and time again, and you'll see it, and it'll infuriate you as much as it did us. But the family is very naive, and I think that a big part of that comes from the fact that they're members of this church, this Mormon church, which is the church has become its own community. And the fact that B is loved by everyone, he is the one that's playing with the kids all the time. And he is taking that burden off of them and everyone likes him. They trust him because he is a member of their church, but also because he is their friend. And it's, it's, he takes advantage of that of that trust that the family has. I mean, not to make a pun, but it's blind faith, you know? It's it like is. They have blind faith in B. It also is a different time in the 1970s when the word sexual predator or child molester wasn't something that was known. And if it did happen, it was very hush-hush and wasn't talked about. So people didn't understand what was happening, and it was kind of brushed under the rug. I mean, they didn't even refer to them as pedophiles no. either. Right, and we learned that from the FBI. Yeah. So although the Brobergs may have been blind to what was going on, it is clear in retrospect what B was doing to young Jan. All the signs that point towards the grooming of a child by a sexual predator were there. First, he sought to isolate Jan from her loving family. At the time, Jan shared the basement room with Karen, her middle sister. It was a very large room, and the girls loved it because they were able to play dress up and run around. However, B began to say that the girls were getting too old, that they needed their privacy. He then volunteered to create the room for the Broberg family. He spent several weekends building a wall with a door 
that would separate the rooms, giving each girl her own bedroom. That's what B did. He masked his manipulation with a favor. So you couldn't say no, you actually ended up thanking him for it. He was forming a friendship and easily controlling every situation the family was in. Bob began to trust B with a lot of things and ask him financial questions and questions about his relationship and his family life. He, he was his confidant. Bob and Marianne are just nice people. They're good people. And watching the documentary, you can 100% see that. And they're faithful. And they are just going to be very passive throughout this whole ordeal that is going to last until 2005. And they easily allowed a dominating person like B to come in and just obliterate their family. That's yeah, I mean, what's going to happen. Total takeover. Right. So the first incident is one night during one of the many family sleepovers that happen. Birchtold is going to be hosting all of the kids over at his house. And the kids were sleeping out on a large trampoline that the family had under the stars when something woke Jan up. She had felt someone's hands on her. She turned over and she saw that B was next to her. Her underwear was off. At 12 years old, she was mortified, embarrassed about this. When she asked what happened, he told her that she was moving around so much that she must have been uncomfortable and taken them off while she was sleeping. Jen never told anyone about the night on the trampoline, and she still really liked all of the attention B was giving her. I mean, she's a child. She doesn't really understand what's happening. She also liked all the things that he was doing for her and her family. The Birchtolds asked the Brobergs if Jan would like to come with them on a vacation to Seattle in June of 1973. Because the families always took each other's children on vacation, they said yes. However, when they returned, they heard a troubling story. During dinner one night, Jan was rocking back and forth and seemed very disoriented. But not to worry, B said. I carried her back to the hotel and put her to bed. The Brobergs thanked him for taking such good care of their daughter. But Jan never told them that while she was falling in and out of consciousness on the bed of the hotel room, she saw B standing in the room with her, completely naked. In her head, she told herself that that maybe he was just changing and he thought she was sleeping. So she wrote it off and again didn't tell anyone. All of this is horrific and traumatizing for a young girl like Jan. But she ignored it because of all the fun that they were having together. She didn't mind because really she thought in her young, naive mind that B was in love with her. Now, the Brobergs did not know, but their beloved B had already tried to groom two other young girls in the community. But their parents, as soon as they caught on to his game, forbid him from ever returning to their homes. But to B, the Brobergs were different. They really trusted him. However, if he was going to do what he wanted to do with Jan, he was going to have to have 
a 100% guarantee that the family would never contact law enforcement. And he was going to do this by destroying both Bob and Marianne. So what would destroy this couple? Well, they're into their family, their marriage, and their faith. So B was going to take it all down. B's first target was Marianne. He started by calling Marianne and asking her to bring him lunch, because if he didn't have it, then he wouldn't be able to make it to church. And as the weeks went on, it became very common for Marianne to bring lunches to B. They also began to attend church functions together and were nominated to visit other LDS churches in the area. B had a very charismatic personality. He also was good at reading people. Bob may love Marianne, but he doesn't give her the attention that she needs. So he does. He tells her how beautiful she is and how great her body looks and how nice her legs are. And she liked the way it made her feel when he said those things to her. And all of this is going to come to a head when B and Marianne are going to attend a church function in Logan, Utah. B chooses to take a detour and drive through the beautiful mountains. They stop to get a look at all of the scenery. And in the documentary, Marianne explains that she just stayed out of the car too long. She let B kiss her and touch her. He groped her, and then that's where she stopped him. They got back in the car and continued the drive home and went home to their respective families. However, Marianne said that she thought about that kiss every day. I mean, that's his goal is to get some sort of blackmail on her. Right. And, well, and he knows he definitely exactly has what it. to do. I mean, he knows exactly what to do. He knows exactly what buttons to press. And that's right. what's really scary, you know? Yeah, like he's very good at reading people. And that's what predators do. They can read people and see what they need in their life. They give it to them to gain that trust. And then that's when that violation happens. But it's his grip on the family is so terrifying because... I don't know if you caught it, but I felt like when she was explaining the story, she was still talking about it like it was a good memory. Oh, yeah, for sure. Like, that was the difference between Bob and Marianne Marianne throughout their little confessions throughout the documentary. Right. I felt as if she was really, like, still taken back. By... By the his the yeah. way he made her feel. Yeah. Oh, for yeah. sure. Mm-hmm. Bob this is definitely the opposite of that. Right. Well, I I mean, well, Marianne was successfully infiltrated, right? But now it's time to focus on Bob. And <laughs> I have to say, this was a really emotional part of the documentary. Um, they had a one-on-one interview with him, and my heart from this like moment on went out to this man. Like it was so emotional. I sobbed like a baby, like always. I did it like three times during this whole documentary. But Bob is going to explain that one day in 1973, B walks into his florist shop and he seems really upset. So when Bob asked him what was wrong, B said that he wanted to just go for a drive and talk about it. So seeing that his friend was really upset, he's going to say, sure, let's go. As B was driving, he told Bob that he was a really sexual person and that he was miserable at home. His wife would never have sex with him. 
He then pulled over and said that he just needed some relief in his life. Bob then noticed that his friend was starting to get aroused. He kept saying, come on, Bob, it's just kid stuff. You just have to help me out. And B would not stop asking him. Eventually, Bob reached over to relieve his friend. And it was just emotion. It was just like, oh, my God. Oh, my God. We were yelling at the TV. We're like, no, Bob. It was definitely a shocker because I, I, ex- I didn't expect that. I mean, it was completely out of left field. You know? Yeah, I didn't expect that to be the case either like it's very rare that you see a predator to in order to take advantage of a child have an affair with both parents and you could say when bob is explaining this story um and he was explaining his shame like you just saw all of his emotions written on his face and in his eyes and this man not only violated his wife his daughter but also him and he's supposed to be the protector right because see it's a it's it's at such a different level because like you just said it's it's every aspect of his family and everyone in it pretty much and it's it's also as a guy for that to happen you know it's a hard thing to admit you've been taken advantage of sexually as a man by another man right and And that's that's a hard thing to swallow It, it is no, I, I completely, I agree. And the fact that they're a part of the Mormon community and that he felt like if this were ever to get out that he would be shunned from the community, so. Yeah, once again, perfect blackmail. Right, and he's very brave for telling this story. Um, one, only that incident is explained to us in the documentary. Um, from my understandings and from videotapes heard um, from uh, Robert Birchtold about the relationship, it did sound like there was more than one incident. But I'm not yeah, going to yeah. assume and I'm not going to talk about it because I do feel so bad for this man. There's also no evidence other than his testimony that there was right, more than one right. incident. It was just like when Robert Birch told in the tapes would talk about it, he would talk about like the homosexual relationship and the incidents. So maybe, maybe they were harmless and he's just blowing it up to be more. I don't know. Or he's completely making it up. Or he's doing that for blackmail. True. And it, and it does have a basis in truth because one incident did take place. Yes. So he's blowing it up. So now that he had isolated Jan from her sisters and gotten her parents out of the way, because now, you know, he has them wrapped around his finger, B could have Jan all to himself. He continued to come over every weekend with his family. And spent more and more time with her. However, a problem arose in January of 1974. The LDS church, which they were all a part of, had caught Birch told acting inappropriately with a young girl. They requested that he seek counseling. He agreed and saw a counselor in Idol Falls. This doctor is going to refer him to a clinical psychologist in California. Birchtold chooses to go to California for a few weeks to visit the doctor. Maybe, he said, the doctor would be able to get him through his fixation with Jan. But like always, this just became another one of B's tricks. When he returned a few weeks later, he told the Broberg family that he was trying to get past the abuse he suffered as a child. 
At the age of four, his aunt had molested him. B told Bob that his doctor recommended that he spend time with his daughters as part of a recovery therapy. So I went away because I'm obsessed with your daughter, and my doctor told me to spend more time with your daughter. Right. Now... Sounds weird. It's it's so infuriating, but once again, we have to remember the time period. There was no way of checking if he went or not. Right. Well... At all. B is going to say, go ahead, call the doctor, you can ask him, and Bob never really takes him up on that, but... I don't want to keep using the time period as an excuse because, like, no. This is where Marianne and Bob should have put their foot down and said, that's kind of weird. Well, I don't, I'm, I'm, I'm just saying as, as far as evidence is concerned, like, oh, how, like, how do we know that you went to the No, therapy? I know. But, I'm, but you're 100% right. Like, yeah, if they I was could... Bob, I would have said, absolutely, yeah, let me talk to your doctor. This is fucking weird. Well, right, like, and like you're saying, with the evidence, he really could just hire somebody to be the doctor on the other line. Totally. But yeah, like, I would have I would have been like, are you fucking kidding me? Like, no. Right, well, you're and then, to hang another out reason weird. why we're getting so heated is because we know what the time was. True. So, another big part of the therapy wasn't just that he spent time with the girls, but that he spent time alone with Jan in her bed while she was sleeping. I know, guys. You're going crazy right now because I'm going crazy right now. <laughs> like, what? I, yeah, he was supposed to be sleeping with Jan, and as she was sleeping next to him, he was supposed to be listening to therapy tapes. Right. Therapy tapes. Well, he was listening to therapy tapes, but um, uh, it was just the the tapes were very interesting, and... We'll, we'll talk about them a little bit after this break, but Bob is going to agree and say, well, if it's for his therapy, we might as well let him do it. And I just think that was a massive mistake. See, I have a problem with this whole thing. And it's not just Bob and Marianne. It's also the fact that the church and the people in the church knew about other incidents. Yeah. Literally said, go get therapy because you're fucked up. And then... Like welcome him. They welcomed them right back, like nothing ever happened, and same behavior. Yeah, like but Bob and Marianne also weren't reporting that this was happening. The other families were, which shows us that no, it was not a part of the social norms at the time that other people are reporting him for this. Oh no, they're just extremely naive. Yeah, and lead back. But I mean, there comes a point and a time where you You have to stand your foot down. This fucking guy is like trying to molest your children. Yes. Okay, so let's take a break to hear from our first sponsor, Vistaprint. So this year we decided not to leave our holiday cards to the last minute like we always do. We went to Vistaprint to order custom cards, and it was so easy to make something really special that we know our friends and family will love to get. I honestly can't wait for people to see them and hang them up for the season. We picked the nice black and white design to celebrate this upcoming year being the year that we get married. But no matter where you'll be this holiday season, whether it's skiing the slopes, basking on the beaches, or hunkering down at home with your loved ones, nothing says happy holidays like custom cards, calendars, and photo gifts from Vistaprint. When you open a card or a calendar and see your friends and family smiling back at you, It just feels like holiday time. 
It also feels like the person cares because they took the time to make it special. But it doesn't actually take that much time at all. Pick a shape like a square or rounded corners, folded or flat, and then choose one of Vistaprint's gorgeous designs. You can put your favorite picture on most of them and even upload a great shot right from your phone. Figure out how many you need, order them up, and get and order them up in plenty of time for the holidays. Vistaprint has hundreds of card designs, from timeless classics to the latest trends. Vistaprint also has a custom calendar for a year's worth of memories. All custom cards and calendars are 50% off right now. You can also upload your favorite photo and put it right on a mug, canvas, or other photo gifts. Your satisfaction is 100% guaranteed, or they'll make it right, either by reprinting your order or offering you a refund. So get merry, get jolly, get 50% off all holiday cards and calendars. Plus, save on other photo gifts at vistaprint.com. Just enter promo code TCCHOLIDAY. That's vistaprint.com promo code TCCHOLIDAY. This offer is valid until January 31st, 2019. All right, guys, let's get back to the show. Birchtold would listen to these therapy tapes, which um, were revealed to us in the documentary, and they were sick. They were describing a sexual encounter of the listener. Like, it was a guy who was sitting on a beach, and the the speaker in this like male monotone voice was talking about a female like engaging in sexual acts with him as they had like a warm blanket around them and they were at the beach and waves were crashing around them weird it was so weird that's not therapy tapes that's like porn tapes like like, let's get aroused tapes yeah while you're laying in bed next to a, a little girl that's bullshit so before jen would get to bed b would be there and he would give her her allergy pills. Well, that's what he called them. So she would sleep better. Four nights a week for six months, Jan had to share a bed with B. Yeah, guys and girls. That's yeah. legit. Like, we're not making this up. For six months, four nights a week. And he was giving her pills so she would pass out. Yeah, cool. So you're giving this girl roofies so, well sleeping for, pills yeah but I, i'm I know. making the joke but drugging her up and then you know laying in a bed with her god no doing god knows what yeah that's shocking i've never heard of any and, case like and this, don't ever. forget he's also the guy who put up the wall so she had her own bedroom right so he could just do what he wants right like everything that he does has a plan there's a plan to it. There, there's there's motive yeah, he is like one of the biggest calculating manipulators ever. I've I've never heard of anything like this. No, and it only gets worse. So. Yes, it does. <laughs> the final night that B sleeps in the same bed as Jan is October sixteenth, nineteen seventy-two. This is because the next day is what will become known as the first abduction. The first. The first. On October 17th, B calls Marianne and tells her that he wants to take Jan horseback riding a few towns over. 
Marianne was apprehensive because of the strange ways that B was really starting to show his obsessions for Jan again. It was only intensifying with all of these therapy treatments he said he was going through. But Jan was begging her mother to go. Marianne told her that it was a school night and she had piano practice, so she didn't know. But B is going to butt in and say that it was okay. He would just pick her up from piano practice and he would have her home before dinner. And Jan really wanted to go. So Marianne agreed. B picked Jan up from her piano lesson. And as soon as she got in the car, he handed her an allergy pill. Take it, Dolly, he said. You're going to need it being around all of those horses. So she did. And she remembers becoming instantly drowsy. Dinner time came and went at the Broberg family house that night. And B and Jan never came back home. Everyone was starting to get worried. At 9 p.m., they had a knock at the door. It was Gail, B's wife. Over the last few years, Gail and Marianne had become close friends, so she quickly let her in. They all discussed how they were worried, but Gail did persuade the family not to call police, and they agreed not to. Jan had left with B on a Thursday, and she didn't come home that night. She didn't come home on Friday either, or Saturday. This is when Marianne and Bob are going to make the decision to call the FBI. When they made the call, no one was in the office. An emergency phone number was given, but Marianne and Bob didn't call the number. They said they didn't want to bother anyone with their mistake. They had let her go with B. So was it really a kidnapping? I think that that's a hard situation because they, like that idea of, oh, we just didn't want to bother anyone. That was really truly how they felt. That's not an act. That's not like a stupidity. Like they felt first that they were, she was safe with B. And then they felt like, okay, well, even if we call law enforcement, they're going to say, why'd you let her go with him? So they were, that was their apprehension in calling. I also don't think they understand the severity, law, the severity and the laws like, just because you send your kid with someone else that you trust, and then they don't show up, that doesn't mean not to call. Right. It's, it's, still, it's kidnapping. still kidnapping. Or missing persons, and two missing right. people. Or maybe they're hurt somewhere. Regardless, right. you call the police or exactly. the author- whatever, the authorities. What if it was just a car accident? You're right. Could be. Then they can go send someone out and search. Right. They tried to call the FBI again on Sunday. Someone answered. And on October 22nd, five days since they had last seen their daughter, they finally reported her disappearance. The special agent to take the case with his partner was Pete Welsh, who at this point had been an FBI agent for five years. By the way, this guy is like the ultimate FBI agent. He couldn't have been casted any better. Like, you look at him and you're like, oh, that guy's in the FBI. Oh, yeah. 100%. I truly believe, though, that all FBI agents have to fit a certain mold, I feel like. Like, they have to be Mm -hmm. a certain way about them. I think this guy was the mold. 
I like think this he, guy, <laughs> he is. Yeah, you know what? You're right. Actually, he is the mold, and all else followed. They all follow yeah, like, him. It, it's just so weird, but it's all the same. Yes, it's interesting. So this is the guy that's going to help them. That's going to help them with the case. His name is Pete Welsh, and they got they got a good FBI agent here working with them. So he said that when he first heard the story from the mouths of the Brobergs, that something was off with this guy B that they kept talking about. It took the Brobergs hours to tell Welsh the whole story, and he listened quietly. After they were done, it took another half an hour for Welsh to convince the Brobergs that their daughter, despite what they believe, had been kidnapped. She's your daughter, ma'am. No one has the right to take her without your permission for any period of time longer than you agreed to. The FBI agents are then going to pay a visit to Gail Birchtold. They asked her what she knew about the disappearance. She said she has no idea where her husband was or what he was doing. They asked her for a description of all their vehicles. That's when the FBI learns that Birchtold was the owner of a mobile home. They drove over to the storage unit where the mobile home was kept. And then, when the owner opened the unit, they saw that it was empty. As the Broberg family waited helplessly at home, the FBI went in two directions regarding Jan's disappearance. First, they looked into the therapy treatments that Birch told was telling the family he needed. They contacted their offices in California, who got back to them stating that the clinical psychologist that Birch told was using had been treating sexual predators for years, using unconventional methods and tactics like the one he was using with Jan. And because of these methods, he actually lost his license to practice. So this was an unlicensed psychologist that he was working with. Clearly, that gave him those tapes. So it's not all made up. No. it what He was directed to do that, but by another sicko. Because these so people crazy. tend to find each other. It's, it's so crazy. Weird. So Special Agent Welsh had to take a step back. This was the first pedophile case his agency had ever covered. And it was out of his conceptualization. A child sexual predator was not even in the scope of thinking when it came to the FBI at this time. Welsh did not know exactly how to proceed, but he knew he needed as much information as possible. And I have to say that this is very forward thinking of Welsh. I thought that um, he was very intelligent. He was also very willing to understand and listen and help this family understand and help himself understand like he was very open and willing to get educated right which is important right i mean if you're going to dive into a case and try to figure out exactly what's going on it's right to be open-minded is is a great quality absolutely especially with this because it's so bizarre The second direction they're going to go in is they are going to try and interview everyone who knows Birchtold. And in doing this, they learn that Birchtold is two people. To some, he is a loving and sweet man who would do anything for anyone. 
He loves playing with the kids and all the kids love him. Now, that was so interesting because when we watched that documentary um, about Jerry Sandusky and, you know, like, Joe, it was during Pro- Paterno. Yeah. You know, that documentary. Um, well, the movie. But the documentary we watched, it was eye-opening to me because the way they explained Jerry Sandusky always being the one playing with the kids in the pool with the kids while the other adults like just hung out and like drank at barbecues that's the way i see be here oh yeah it's 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 so similar yeah it's very similar situations however from two families in town welsh learns of b's attempts to get closer with their daughters one was seven and the other was nine at this point birch told is 36 years old just to give you like context here he's 36 a story of Birchtold's life was also told to the agents by his brother. His brother speaks at length about Birchtold's predilection towards very young girls. We know now that he's a pedophile, his brother said in his interview for the documentary. We always thought it was very weird, but we let him be. It all began when Birchtold was around 13 years old and their parents went away. Birchtold had three siblings, two brothers and a younger sister. Um, some of them were step and some of them were half. While his mother and stepfather were out, his brother caught him inappropriately touching his six-year-old stepsister. And in the interview, I thought it was pretty interesting and it's going to kind of come into play a little bit later, but I felt like his brother was like, at, he added in at the end, oh, but it, but it was only his stepsister. Like, in a way, still protecting him and making excuses for his behavior, which is what I think his family did. Oh, I'm sure. And I got the same vibe, too. But I also think, like, he was also straightforward and didn't sugarcoat anything. No, he didn't. He fucking came out and pretty much said that his brother was a weirdo and, like, you know, kind of... Oh, no, he definitely didn't approve of his brother and he thought he was disgusting. But he was... When it came to that story about his sister, he was very like, no, like, well, it was a stepsister. Like, there was excuses made, which was very common at the time in situations where you saw, like, just he was trying to take the incest part out of it because of the taboo. Forgetting the fact that she's six years old. Right. But I just I have a feeling that the family made a lot of excuses for a very long time. And allowed this behavior and allowed him to harness this sick sexual disease as, like, into in, him being good at it. Like, well, yeah, good at manipulating to... because yeah. he was obviously getting... He was able to cultivate it. Yeah, right, right. So the second thing the FBI is going to do is the physical investigation. At this point, Jan and Birchtold had been missing for over a week, meaning that they really could be anywhere in the country. Or in another country. The manhunt began for the man's two vehicles, his Lincoln and his motorhome. Finally, they had a break in the case. A vehicle matching the description of his car was sighted off of a highway a few miles away from the horse ranch that the man was supposed to take Jan to. When law enforcement approached, they were presented with a puzzling scene. Here, I have to say that local and federal law enforcement did an amazing job preserving 
and analyzing the scene around the car so that they would be able to get a good understanding of, of what truly happened there. The car was found off the highway in the middle of a dirt pull-off. The car window was broken and there was blood streaming down the side of the light-colored vehicle. The keys were still in the ignition. To the untrained eye, it looked like a kidnapping, but Special Agent Welsh was not untrained. He noticed right away that the car windows were broken from the inside out, and the blood on the car looked like it dripped down from right above, and it wasn't smeared in a fight. But the evidence that most pointed to a staged kidnapping in the case of Birchtold's were the tire tracks and the footprints. From the car was one set of footprints that disappeared by the tire tracks. Tire tracks that were consistent with the tires that Birchtold had on his own motorhome, meaning that there was only one person. Birchtold had carried Jan to the motorhome. If he was kidnapped, there would have been two sets of footprints at least, because his captor would not have been able to carry him. And even if he was able to physically carry Birchtold's, there wouldn't only be one set of footprints. He would have to go back and forth at least three times. Once to get to the car, once to carry Birchtold, once to carry the girl. But there was only one set of footprints away from the car towards tire tracks. So this was clearly a very poorly staged kidnapping scene. While Welsh is continuing his search and the Broberg family is desperately waiting, Jan is going to slowly wake up. She's so groggy. She realizes that she is lying down in a dark room, but she had the sensation that she was moving. Her wrists and ankles were strapped down and she couldn't move. She instantly thought that this is what everyone was talking about when they explained what UFO abductions were like. She couldn't see anything, but she could definitely hear. There was a small white box next to her head. There was a strange monotone voice speaking through it. She was trying to listen to what the box was saying to her, but she kept falling in and out of sleep. Finally, she couldn't keep her eyes open any longer, and she drifted off to sleep again. When she finally wakes up again, she is no longer tied up, but the room is still dark and the voices are still talking. This time she can listen, and she's truly terrified by what she hears. There were two aliens talking, named Zethra and Zeta. They told her that everything she knew was a lie, that she was part alien. Her mother was her mother, but her father was only pretending to be her father. Her real father was an alien, making her half-alien. And now that she knew the truth, she had a mission to complete. In order to save the alien planet, she would have to have a child by the age of 16 with the chosen male companion. If she does not succeed, her younger sister Susan, who was also half-alien, would have to complete the mission for her. Now, I... <laughs> I know that this sounds crazy, that it's, it's a stretch, but we have to remember that Jan is an 11-year-old girl who's highly impressionable, and let's also not forget that she's alone, terrified, 
and far away from home. And also probably drugged up. Yes, definitely feeling the effects of the sleeping pills that she's been given. But also, this story isn't out of the realm of thinking for Jan, especially as an 11-year-old girl in a religious upbringing. This is the story of the Virgin Mary. It is. You it's know? alien version. Yeah, <laughs> an alien version of the Virgin Mary. It's a virgin birthing a savior that would save an entire race of people. That would... This is not... This is in her realm of possibilities. Right. She has to complete the mission. Right. And now she's terrified and scared. At 11 years old, I would believe this. I watched the craft and thought I was a witch when I was 11. Like, this happens. <laughs> you would hear this and you'd be like, oh my God, this is real. Like, she truly feels like she was abducted in that situation. Which, in a sense, she was abducted. Well, yeah, but she thinks by UFOs. <laughs> right. So the voice continues to talk to her. It explains that after the tape is over, she will leave the room and the chosen male companion will be waiting for her. The tape was over and she walked out of the tiny room and laying on a couch of what she now realized was a motorhome was B. He was passed out and he had cuts and blood all over him. Jan was worried that he was dead. She said that she felt instant relief wave all throughout her body when she saw him. Because this was B. She knew him. He was an adult and he would help her with this terrifying mission and the fact that she was an alien. So she was just glad that she had someone else to go through this with her. So she's going to begin shaking him and trying to wake him up. Because at this point she thinks he's dead. B finally wakes up. And when he does, he explains to Jan what happened. While they were driving to go see the horses, a white light came out of the sky. And the light must have taken them because he doesn't remember anything else after that. She told him that he was right. And she explained to him what the whole mission was and that they needed to have a baby. He told her that it would be hard, but he would do it to save her. This is un believable that this guy has now made the victim feel like it's the abuse is her idea do you know what i'm saying oh yeah and that she's the savior it's it's just like mind-blowing yeah the the lengths that this guy went to to um make a girl feel comfortable having sex with him at 11 years old it's it's really crazy It's 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 in it's disgusting it is it really is i i just don't even I don't even know how someone can do it. It's just like it's an unfathomable low for a human being to make another person live in a terrified state at all times. Oh, yeah. Because now that's what he has created in her. And we're going to see that in the future in her entire life. Right. Now this fear, this anxiety, this that's never going to go away. Oh, no way. So this, in a sense like he was doing before, is the ultimate isolation. Think about it. Now, she knows this secret about herself that she's half alien and she needs to save the race by becoming pregnant by 16. And now she has to isolate herself from the rest of the world because she has this crazy mission to complete. That's just... I, I, I can't even, like, comprehend it all like oh neither it, can i it's insanity it, and i just i can't believe it everybody in this entire story just 
pisses me off. Right. But now she's 100% reliant on him for everything. They have a crazy secret together. And this guarantees the fact that she's going to remain silent, but she's also 100% indebted and dedicated to him and him alone. Absolutely. And I thought it was also very interesting that he chose to say that his... Her father wasn't her father because she. he keeps trying to remove Bob from her life. Like, he wants to take over that role as her father in that sick, sadistic way. Like, he, he wants to remove all the men from her life. Yeah, because he wants to be the only one. Because yes. that's just the way he is. Right, and that's why he does it by saying, that's not your dad. So when Jan talks about the next few weeks, she says that it was all really hazy for her. She was so scared. B kept giving her all of these special relaxing pills, and she truly didn't know that at this point, um, two weeks had gone by, and for the past two weeks, they were headed straight towards Mexico. Three weeks in, three weeks into B and Jan being on the road, the box is going to tell Jan one morning when she wakes up that the time is right for her to ask her male companion to do what makes people happy. She told B that it was time and he gave her another pill to relax. He then pulled out a few books that explained to Jan uh, what sex was and the way that adults did it. She explained heartbreakingly in an interview that when she thinks about the rape of her 11-year-old self, she knows it's not the violent rape that others have explained when discussing um, being victimized, but she knows that it was extremely traumatic, and she recalls that, obviously, he, he was not very aggressive with her. He was very, like, took everything very slowly, and she said that she remembers just looking up, and there was a vent in the ceiling of the trailer, and that there must have been a tree branch over it, so she just remembered, kept looking at the leaves. Yeah. That's how she kind of got through the experiences that she had with him, because they were several. And um, so disturbing, and, like, just so sad to hear her recall it. Yeah, of course. Because that's just something that you can't forget. No. Unfortunately. So let's take a break here to hear from our second sponsor, Third Love. Third Love wants you to find the most comfortable bra fit for your size this holiday season. Third Love uses millions of real women's measurements. Third Love designs its bra with size and shape in mind for impeccable fit and incredible feel. It's the details that make the difference, from premium fabrics to expert designs. Take the fun Fit Finder quiz today. Just answer a few simple questions to find your perfect fit. It's actually really fun to take, and it takes less than a minute to complete. Did you know that your breast shape matters when finding a good fit? Well, Third Love helps you identify your size and shape when it comes to your body. This is hands down the most comfortable bra that you'll ever own. Tagless labels mean no more itching or scratching. The straps never slip and the ultimate soft, smoothing fabrics, lightweight, super thin memory foam cups feel great all day long. Third Love takes its customer input very seriously. They recently launched their most requested style, 
cotton t-shirt bras, and cotton underwear. It took two years to develop the perfect cotton collection, which is made with a premium cotton called Pima. The result is a line of incredibly soft, smooth, and breathable bras and underwear that you'll want to wear every day. Third Love knows there's a perfect bra for everyone, so right now they're offering our listeners 15% off their first order. Go to thirdlove.com slash TCC now to find your perfect fitting bra and get 15% off of your first purchase. That's thirdlove.com slash TCC for 15% off today. All right, let's get back to the show. At this point, Jan was missing for 35 days, and it was November 20th. Bertstold is going to call his brother, who owns a car dealership in Ogden, Utah, which is very funny because the hi-fi murder story that we just did happened in Ogden, Utah. Weird, right? Yeah, it is weird. Bertstold asked his brother for a favor. Can you please call the Broberg family and ask Marianne to give me written permission to marry Jan. He had actually taken Jan to Mexico, where it was legal to get married at the age of 12. Jan had just turned 12. And that is what happened. Jan was coerced into marrying B. She thought the two were in love, and they had a mission to complete. However, Birchtold did not want to face kidnapping charges when he returned to the United States, so he wanted his brother to appeal to the family. This request deeply disturbed his brother, and although he knew that this may end his relationship with his brother, he contacted the FBI and let him know what the situation was, where his brother was, and that the young girl was safe, but the two had gotten married. At this point, the news of the missing 12-year-old girl was national. So, B's brother knew that he had now taken this girl to Mexico. But I'm happy, though, that... His brother stood up. Absolutely. I mean, can't you know this just shows that he's not going to defend them anymore. Like, what, he, what he's done is just unthinkable. That's true. Like, you know? here's a consequence. Yeah. So, when he calls again, they're able to get a trace, and they know exactly where he's calling from. The Mexican police are going to break down the trailer door and take the two into custody. While sitting in a Mexican prison, Jan recalls that a police officer took her down to see B in his basement cell in exchange for his gold ring. So he had bribed the police officer. It is here that he again applies his coercion techniques on the young girl. He told her that Zethra and Zeta came to him to remind him that they had to continue the mission. And in order to do so, the two could not be in trouble. She has to tell her family that he took her down to Mexico for vacation. And he should have asked her family, but he forgot. He just made a mistake. But he didn't do anything wrong. He also reminded her that she could not talk about the relaxing pills, the mission, or the sex that they had. Also, you can't have any contact with other men. And if she breaks any of these rules, her father will die, Karen will go blind, and they will take Susan to complete the mission. I think that this is 
incredible that while he's facing prison time, he's sitting in a Mexican jail and he still needs to have that domination over her enough to say, don't let another man touch you. Like that's his, he is zoned in on this little girl. Yeah, he he doesn't want anyone to come in between them. Anybody. It's insanity. And he will do anything it takes for that to happen. Yeah, and he doesn't care about the consequences. It's clear here. Oh, it's been clear. Like, he definitely doesn't give a shit. Bob and Marianne flew to Mexico to pick up their little girl. And she was so excited to see them. But she asked her parents when B was going to come with them. When could they all go home? When they tell her that they have to leave him here, her whole personality changes. On the plane, Jan refuses to talk to or even hug her father. She was keeping her promise to be. Bob recalls how just heartbreaking this was and that he was scared that he had lost his little girl forever. It's a real fear because... With everything that has happened so far to this point, that is something that crosses your mind because you don't need it to be weird now with you. I mean, you're her, you know, that you're the father, and it's just like everything's just messed up now, you know? No, I completely agree. And it's, it's like, it's, it's a fear of what, what happened, what took my daughter's innocence away. And oh, I, yeah. That's a scary feeling. When they returned home, the Brobergs sent back the Mexican marriage certificate to Mexican authorities with a note requesting an annulment. Birchtold was indicted on kidnapping charges. Jan was examined, and the doctor said that she had not shown any signs of sexual trauma. Um, what happened, B had never like fully had sex with her. Um, there was no bruising and her hymen was intact, was what the doctor had said to Marianne and Bob. However, Jan may not show signs of a physical attack, but she was no longer the vivacious girl that she once was. And quite literally, the weight of a universe was on a 12-year-old girl's shoulders. She wouldn't talk to her sisters about anything, and she was standoffish with everyone. She went back to school like nothing had happened, and she still refused to speak to her father. All right, so let's get to the part of the story where I did and John did, and I'm sure you guys will when you see it. You scream in frustration. Just like massive amounts of infuriating feelings are going to flood you. For you know, the rest of this episode. You know, like, when you look at somebody and you're like, what? And then you, like, kind of, like, do, like, a double take and then it becomes, like, a triple take. It's just like, that's, like, Why? that's, I just, I know. that's how I had to react. So, Special Agent Welsh is going to tell the Brobergs to cut off all contact with the Birchtolds. Common sense. But they didn't do that. Clearly. <sighs> the kids are still going to play together and Gail occasionally comes over. That is why when Gail is going to come over around Christmas time, it's not strange. Gail is going to ask to speak with Bob alone in his back room. While Gail is there with Bob, she's going to threaten him. She said that if Marianne and Bob don't sign off on an affidavit dropping all charges of kidnapping, that 
it would be revealed that Marianne and Bob both had committed sexual indiscretions with her husband. Now that takes balls. That does take balls. Lady, you know about this? How are you married to this man? You know that he has a sexual obsession with a girl. This has clearly happened before. And he's involved in sexual activity with this and couple. And he has his own children like, as well. What? Like, what? Like, You're not your scared eyes, for your kids? Yeah. Oh, my God. All right. Sorry. We just... Let, it no. was it was more mad when the documentary was happening, screaming at the screen. Letting it all out. Letting it all out. <laughs> so the couple decided uh, that they could not have this information revealed to their community for whatever reason they chose to. So they signed the affidavit to drop all charges against Birchtold. Welsh was furious. He had worked so hard to bring that girl back home. For one whole month, he left his family to live with the Brobergs to get Jan back and try and convince them how dangerous B was. And now they were just dropping all charges. Like nothing happened. Welsh and the prosecutors told Brobergs, told the Brobergs that they could drop the charges, but the federal government would not. However, without the cooperation of the Brobergs, they didn't have any witnesses, so they had to postpone the case. Obviously, things were very rocky at this point between Birchtold and his wife, Gail. Clearly. Birchtold is going to move out of the house, and he spends his week living in his motorhome in Ogden, Utah, where his brother has a used car lot, and he's going to work as a salesman there. And his brother said that he could sell cars like nobody's business, because, of course, that's his personality. And on the weekends, he would return to Idaho to spend time with his five children and be closer to Jan. When he returned to town... He also went to church, where the Brobergs were, and Bob and Marianne had to hear everyone in their community approach Birchtold and pat him on the shoulder and pat him on the back and tell him that everything was going to be okay soon and that this would all be cleared up in no time. He had an entire community fooled. One night, B was able to sneak into the Broberg home. And he heads straight for Jan's room. He brings the white box with him, with all of its alien messages. And he told her that she was doing a great job, that they could be together soon and get married again, as long as she kept following all of the rules. Birchtold found ways to contact Jan, even though he wasn't allowed to see her. She would get notes from people at school. The notes would either tell her a time to go to a specific payphone, and this is how uh, Zethra and Zeta would communicate with her and tell her to keep up the mission, or the note would be a love letter from B, and she would always write love letters back to him in response. Uh, one thing in particular that they talked about was Jan loves acting, and she was the lead role in the play Oliver. She was Oliver. And he went to that play and he told her in this love letter that every song she sang, he knew it was meant for him, especially the song about like loving him and like 
Oh, it's just, it was sick. I can't look at Oliver Twist the same again. No, I can never, no. Ugh. So, Birchtold was getting frustrated that he couldn't be with Jan. So, he changed his plan. He knew Bob was the one stopping him from seeing the Broberg family. So, he simply had to get Bob out of the way. In spring of 1975, Birchtold began calling the Broberg house every day while Bob was at work, and Marianne was home alone. He apologized to her and said that he just wanted to see her again. She was so beautiful, and he was in love with her. And she would listen, and she wouldn't hang up on him. And eventually she asked, If you love me, why did you marry Jan? Which is friggin' sick. That that would even be a thought process. Oh, absolutely. But (laughs) he said that he wanted to explain everything to her and talk in person. He just needed her to come to Ogden. So she did. And it was there that he professed his love for her. And the two had sex. What? I still can't even understand. I know. I know. But it goes back to the kiss and the groping and, and all that and whole thing. And her feeling of excitement. I feel like she didn't have a life of excitement with Bob, but this man kidnapped your daughter. Um, but I also think that in um, that in her Mormon faith, she was very repressed sexually. So, like, this was her... There's no excuse, but it's there's a lot of, like, culminating factors coming together, leading to this woman saying yes to this, especially a huge one being that this man is so manipulative. I agree. Um, so five days after this encounter, Bert's told is going to call Bob Broberg, Dick, and tell him that he had sex with his wife. Ugh. That's not cool, man. So Marianne explains that she loves Bob, but she couldn't stop having the affair with Birchtold. So during the next eight months, Marianne is going to visit and have sex with Birchtold 11 times. Also during these eight months, Marianne is going to allow Birchtold to see Jan. And in that same time period, he is going to rape her nine times. So he's, in his mind, engaging in sexual activity with a mother and a 13-year-old girl. I mean, look, Marianne is being used as a stepping stone to get access once again to Jan. Correct. It's, It's as plain as, you know, it's it's... Out there in the open for everyone to see. And the fact that a mother didn't see this is incredible to me. Right. This is beyond stupid. It is. I'm sorry to say it. But I. But Bob did see this. And he's beside himself. And he's, he's really at a loss of, of what to do. So he visits his bishop, who tells Bob that he needs to stand up for his family. He has to get his daughters to safety and leave Marianne. If this is the path that she's going to choose. Bob did file for divorce. He also had a subpoena issued to get Marianne out of the house and to have custody of the girls because she was endangering the children. Which, you know what? She was. She was, and he had every right to do so. Right. And this is where B's hand is going to be shown. 
He calls Marianne and says, please get divorced. Move to Ogden with me. If you want, you can get full custody of the children. All you have to do is say that Bob's a homosexual. And he is. I have proof. And this is when it all clicked for Marianne. It's not about her. He just wants Jan to be under his roof. He wants to replace her father. So Marianne ends the affair with Birchtold and went home to Bob. She said that she went into the house and said to her husband, I can't raise these kids alone. I'll get them out of my life. And the two fell into each other's arms. Now, that's nice at all. Don't get me wrong. I'm all for uh, a nice ending to at least, you know, that horrible thing in the relationship. But I mean, no, fuck that. Like, Bob has every right to be like, I want nothing to do with you. You not only endangered our relationship, our marriage, but you also endangered our children, not once, but twice. Right. I agree with you. I think this is... I think every behavior that happens is a little selfish right now, but I also know from what you can see from the case is that Bob and Marianne are are very weak and that they seem to need each other. Yeah. To make a stand, kind of. And I think that, if anything, Bob truly does understand the manipulation of B because he fell victim to it himself. Oh, I agree. But, I mean, the only thing, though, is he put his foot down. Like, he made a decision to pretty much throw away everything that he's known in his life up to this point for his children. I agree. Whereas the whereas Marianne did not do that. Right. He was willing to get a divorce. He was willing to right. so do everything to stop. Right. So I think he's stronger than I people do. are giving no, credit for. No, I completely agree. Because uh, I, Marianne, definitely. I just feel bad for him. But yeah. when he was explaining filing for divorce and getting that subpoena... He said that was the worst day of his life in tears. So you could tell that he really still truly loved his wife and wanted his family together. Definitely. That that wasn't what he wanted. Birch told lays low for a while after this, but continues contact with Jan through past messages. And this leads us to June of 1976, where he's going to stand trial for the federal kidnapping charges. However, this was not as successful as Welsh thought it was going to be. The case really is just going to fall apart because there was no witnesses. The Brobergs refused to testify. So, Birch told was found guilty, but because of the lack of evidence and no witnesses, the judge is going to change the would-be five-year sentence down to 45 days. He would have three months to report to jail. But Birch told couldn't go to jail just yet. It was summer, and he had just purchased a family fun water park in Jackson Hole, Wyoming. So where do we put the most dangerous sexual predator I've ever come across in my life? Well, let's let him own a family water park. Yeah, because that would be great. <laughs> oh my God. And it was peak season, so you can't really go to jail during peak season. Bees told Jan about his water park. And Jan, now 13, wanted to come work for him. And he wanted that too. Jan wanted to go immediately. She begged her parents and threw fits. 
she would fight with everyone so that they were all scared to be around her. Birch told, called Marianne and told her, if you don't allow Jan to come work for me, she's going to run away and she's going to hitchhike all the way to Wyoming. We both know that's not safe. It's not safe being with you either. Yeah, really. Marianne agreed that she didn't want her daughter hitchhiking to Wyoming. So, insert screams here, she put her daughter on a plane to Wyoming. Great. Without Bob's knowledge. Also, great, yeah. And Jan is going to Jackson Hole. And Bob was furious with his wife for doing this. I completely agree with this, Bob. Yeah, I mean, Bob's the only one that's making any sort of sense here. Right now, yeah. So the two lived together in Bee's mobile home, and they resumed the mission to save an alien species. I can't believe I just said that sentence out loud. (laughs) During this time, Birchtold's brother is going to visit, and he says that everything was just disgusting in the way that the two acted. Like, they were in a normal relationship, and his brother just went off the deep end, he said. Okay, let's take a break to hear from our final sponsor, Kopari. Sometimes it's the small changes that can have the biggest benefits. Here's an easy change you can make that your body will thank you for. Switching to aluminum-free deodorant. I recently made the switch with Kopari's coconut deodorant, and I don't think I can ever go back. Unlike most traditional deodorants, Kopari's deodorant is aluminum-free and vegan. It's also free of silicones, sulfites, parabens, GMOs, and baking soda, so it's great for sensitive skin. Kopari's deodorant fights odor with plant-based actives such as sage oil and coconut oil. It doesn't leave behind a sticky white residue, just the sweet, subtle, fresh scent of coconut milk. And it outlasts your longest days. This is Kopari's number one selling product. They can barely keep it in stock. I love that they offer a deodorant subscription. You can just choose how often you want to receive it and they ship it to you automatically for free so you never run out of deodorant again. Kopari offers a money-back guarantee, so there's no reason not to try it today. Go to koparibeauty.com tcc to make the safe switch today and save $5 off your first order when you subscribe. That's Kopari, K-O-P-A-R-I, beauty.com slash T-C-C. Koparibeauty.com slash T-C-C. All right, let's get back to the show. So two weeks after she got there with B, she had to be put back on a plane because school is going to be starting soon, and she had to get ready. When she returned, Birch told called Marianne continuously and told her that he was going to have Jan no matter what, whether they supported them or not. In mid-August, Jan had been home for a week already, but she was very agitated. She did not want to do anything with the family, and she was very mean to everyone. On one night, Marianne had stayed up late to watch TV. She saw Jan peek her head around the corner. 
Marianne looked at her daughter and said, Come on in. Tell me why you're so angry. But Jan just turned away and left. And Marianne let her be. The next morning, Jan didn't come up for breakfast. When they went to check on her, she was not in her bed. In her place was a note. It read, Dear Bob and Marianne, You won't let me do what's right, so I'll do what's wrong. I am leaving without B, and do not plan on coming back until you accept me as me. I cannot accept your religion or your screwed up morals. I just want to be me and have B. Please, before all of us are destroyed, let me go. Jan. That's so sad. I mean, first of all, those are his words. Oh, 100%. Those are his words. She told, she, He definitely coached her into what to write. Like, 100%. Those are not a 13-year-old's right, words. Even, even saying, Dear Bob and Marianne. Yeah, like calling you know, your parents by their first name. I doubt it. I doubt it. I think that what's so interesting about this note is that it was all of him until that last sentence. That was her coming out. Please, before all of us are destroyed, let me go. Yeah. That's how she really feels. That's her chaos in her life. Well, because she's being brainwashed as well. Yeah. Bob's stomach dropped. Their daughter was missing again. Later on in the day, Birch told called the Brobergs and said that Jan had called him and told him that she had run away and she wouldn't tell him where she was. So the Brobergs were worried. Their daughter was missing and she wasn't with B, where they thought she would be. They were embarrassed. They didn't know what to do. Um, They didn't want the church to find out this happened again. Uh, They didn't want the media to know that they had lost their daughter twice. And they knew the FBI and Welsh were furious with them for dropping the charges and not testifying. So they didn't call anybody. They just told anyone who asked where Jan was that she was visiting her grandmother. Two weeks passed, and they had not heard from B or Jan. They're finally going to call the FBI. Welsh, assigned to the case again, is going to make a beeline for Birchtold. You like that? I like that a lot. <laughs> he told them that he did not know where Jan was, and he was brokenhearted, and he hoped that she was okay. So it's kind of weird. Like, where is she? If, if she's not with him... Where, where, is, where she? is she? So three weeks into Jan's going missing, Birch told would have to begin his prison sentence of 45 days in federal prison on September 1st. But because of good behavior, Birch told only served 10 days in prison. How much good behavior can you give out in 10 days that you get released? I mean, that has probably to do with overcrowding and I other know. stuff like that, but... Yeah, right. Insane. insane. It's already a short sentence. (laughs) So after he served his 10 days, he moved to Salt Lake City and lived, like always, in his mobile home. He was supposed to be on parole, but at this point, the federal government couldn't find him. And they were worried that Jen was with him now. So this is when the phone calls began. He called Marianne on a daily basis. She told Welsh about the calls as soon as they began, so they recorded them, and they tried to trace them. But I have to say that these phone calls, because they were recorded, were so bizarre. Like, it was kind of like a 
not a friendship between Marianne and B because Marianne does seem extremely distraught and depressed during this time, but it was very conversational, almost like, I know you're playing a game with me. I'm going to play it because I want my daughter back eventually. And um, there was even one call where, like, uh, Birch told is putting on this, like, huge show. Oh, Marianne, I'm so worried. I talked to Jan and uh, I asked her, I'm like, Jan, how are you making money? And she said, oh, I'm making it hard, B. I'm, I have to prostitute myself and do drugs. And and this is what he's trying to tell Marianne. And it's like, this is so sick. Right. And like, her what response, is happening? Right. Where's my daughter? Yeah. And her, I think her response was, oh, dear. Oh, dear, B. Or something like that. Yeah. And I'm like, I'm like she didn't even know how me? to respond. Like, what kind of fucking reaction? Well, I think she's it? also thinking. So ridiculous. She's also thinking, how much of this is the truth? Well, I mean, I mean, I mean, at this point, everything out of this guy's mouth is a lie. I mean, it's. I feel like it's so stupid to think otherwise. Right. So that's why I think that her reaction wasn't what it really would have been if she found out her daughter was prostituting herself. Yeah, you know what I mean? Probably right. So ninety days into the disappearance of Jan, they are finally going to be able to track a call in November of nineteen seventy-six. They found his trailer park and they put him under surveillance to see if she's there or if he's visiting her, but they get nothing. Finally, federal agents knock on his door and they don't find Jan, but they find several life-sized posters of the girl in his trailer, including the infamous leg up in the air shot in a nightgown. Weird. Yeah. Surveillance is going to continue on the man. Shortly after the check-in with Birch told, the Brobergs are going to get a call from Jan. And she sounds very distant and far away, but it is extremely emotional. They miss her so much, and they keep asking her if she's okay and when she's coming home, and she's evading all of their questions. And she just tells them that she loves them. And when you watch this documentary, because I know you will, I dare you to not cry when she calls home and all of the family reacts to her calling. Especially Bob. Yes. Uh, emotional. Yes. Bob is what got me. I Bob have is to what say. got me too. Oh I my God. I have to say, I mean, guy, uh, guys, I, I'm pretty good with that stuff, but when Bob got on the phone, that was pretty rough for me. That was emotional. Yeah. Oh. He just wants his daughter home. That's all he wants. So on November 11th, 1976... At 102 days missing, Birch told his scene walking to a payphone. He makes a 12-minute phone call. And when he leaves, the FBI approaches. They find a phone number written on a phone book. And it is a number for an all-girls Catholic boarding school in Pasadena, California. The FBI called the school and explained their situation over and over again. And they explained that it's most likely that the girl is enrolled under an alias. Eventually, they find out that the school does have a new student. Her name is Janice Tobler. And her father works for the CIA. <laughs> like, what a loser this it. guy is. I love it. <sighs> Welsh will come to find that Birchtold knew where she was the entire time. He had actually helped her escape from her bedroom basement window. 
and drove her to the Pasadena school in California. He would visit her every weekend. He told the school that he worked for the CIA and that he had just escaped Lebanon, which was in the middle of a Lebanon crisis at the time. Unfortunately, her mother was murdered and they had people looking for them. Therefore, if anyone came to the school looking for Janice, they were the bad guys and they were not allowed to have access to her. He also was going to be away for long periods of time because of his work for the CIA or a federal prison sentence. He was arrested the next day for federal probation violation, first degree kidnapping, and impersonating a federal officer. Jen was forced to get on a plane. She didn't want to leave B. Marianne recalls that when Jan got home, she was so angry. She didn't speak to anyone and she went straight to her room and refused to speak. She was a ghost of her former self. After Jan was home for a little over a month, the family is going to suffer another devastating loss. They get a phone call in the middle of the night from an employee of the florist shop. The store was burning down. The Brobergs went down to see the store, and Bob watched his life's work burn to the ground along with half of the block because the fire had caught on really fast. Welsh admits that this is the first time that he thought that maybe Bob Broberg was actually in physical danger. The FBI did an investigation into the fire. The two men who had started the fire had served in federal prison with none other than Robert Birchtold. Really quickly, mm-hmm. just to kind of go into that, think about this. He only spent 10 days there, so he was able to make two people that he was serving time with in 10 days do that. Right. Like, I, that, that, that is just the he scope He had a plan of, going in. Yeah, like, that is the scope of this guy's power. Like, in 10 days... That's all it took. He could convince someone to do that. Grown men. Well, he also did pay them $1,000 each for the fire. So that kind of sweetened the deal a little bit. True. But there was no evidence except the convict's word that tied Bob Birchdold truly to the fire. So they couldn't pursue that. So they figured, let's pursue these other charges that we actually have evidence for. Right. After his trial... You ready? Oh, I'm ready. He was acquitted by mm-hmm. reason of mental defect in an order signed by the judge. You think? Yeah. You think there's something wrong with him? Yeah. <laughs> so again, he seems to evade any consequences. He beat two kidnapping charges and impersonating a federal agent. The biggest problem, Welsh recalls, was that the Brobergs still refused to testify. And Welsh so poetically put it, the prosecutor half-assed the whole trial. Love him. I love him. I love him too. (laughs) Birchtold was able to enter a mental health facility in 1977. After six months, he was released, completely rehabilitated, The doctor helped him work out that his childhood was to blame. He grew up with a stepfather on an isolated ranch in Wyoming, where he was the stepchild that lived in a bunkhouse or barn. He claimed the help 
sexually abused him. His mother never stood up for him. And in fact, when she got sick and left the farm, he was completely ignored. Eventually, he helped his stepfather by helping raise and care for his little sister, whom he would later molest. He was able to stay in the house because of this responsibility he had with the girl. So he stated that the doctor told him that this meant that he, when going through a rough time, would always look for a little girl to help or raise because it saved him in the past. I think that that's not true. I think that that's not the childhood he had based on the fact that his family is going to protect him just like his brother had. And I don't, I don't think this is true that that was the way he grew up. Yeah, I agree with you too. I mean, if it was, like you said, I I think that the, the brother would have a recollection of of these accounts and And he he doesn't. I also think that, um, he needed a reason to say that he was doing these things. Um, do I think that he was probably sexually abused? Yeah, probably. I do. So yes, a young child was a victim and was treated horrifically. But unfortunately, that young child grew up to become an adult that did the same thing to somebody else. Which is a sad, sad cycle. Now, although completely rehabilitated, Birchtold could not release the grip that he had created around Jan Broberg. He continued to occasionally call her, but he was losing interest. She was getting older. It was June of 1978, and she was 16 years old. Although B was losing interest, the fear and panic that gripped Jan was still very real for her. She still believed that her family was in danger, because she was 16 and not pregnant yet. Jan tried as much as she could to act normally, and the one outlet that she felt she had was acting. She wanted to attend a five-week drama camp. Her parents were apprehensive to let her go because they were scared to ever let her go again. But they eventually decided that it would be healthy for her to be around children her own age. While at camp, she kissed a boy. And she panicked. She ran right back to her bunk and she called home to see if everyone was okay. And when her mother told her that the dogs were sick because she thinks she fed them something wrong, she broke down into hysterics, begging to come home. She knew she caused the dog's illness by breaking the rules. The next morning, her mother called and said the dogs were fine. She felt relieved and thought for a second that maybe this was all a lie. But then fear instantly gripped her, and in her head she apologized to Zethra and Zeta showing that the conditioning Birchtold put on her was still debilitating. That's that, so sad. Yeah, that's not something that you just shake you can't in a ever. couple of years. Like, it's just something that is... It's, it's a part of your being for the becomes, rest of your it life. It becomes that, yes. Yeah. The last event that would help Jan get over her conditioned abuse was her 17th birthday. She knew that when she turned 17, it would be obvious failure of the mission. She knew that her sister Susan would be victimized, and Karen might go blind. Her father might die. 
She was terrified. She had a plan in her head. She was going to get a gun, and on her 17th birthday, she was going to explain the mission to Susan. And if Susan didn't want to complete the mission, she would kill her and then herself, so they wouldn't have to go through anything horrible. But she woke up on her 17th birthday, and everything was okay. She wasn't contacted by aliens, and her family was fine. When she found out it was all a lie, she had mixed emotions. She was relieved. She was angry. She was mad at herself. She knew she had to tell someone. A few weeks later, she told her sister and her best friend. And then they told her parents. It took hours for her to tell her parents about the reality of the abuse between sobs. They now understood so much more, especially about the abnormal behavior of their daughter. With her mother, Jan is going to write a book about their family struggle. This book is entitled Stolen Innocence. They also completed two documentaries, one called Forever Be and the most recent Abducted in Plain Sight. Jane's mission is to get the message out about the danger of predators and the importance of education on the grooming and conditioning of those predators. But this is not where the story ends. When their book was published in 2004, Jan and her mother started attending speaking engagements. During this time, Jan was contacted by six other women who were victimized by Birchtolds after her. He actually had served one year in jail for the abuses of one of the girls. Birchtolds, you're not going to believe, like, this is unbelievable, tried to attend all of their speaking engagements. He tried to go to the speaking engagements when they were talking about the abuse that he, like, delved out to the family. Like, what? Don't go. Like, are are you, it's just, I can't. Well, it's any chance to see her. I know. Um, He is going to make many public statements accusing Jan and her mother of lying about what took place in the 1970s. He threatened Jan and told her, If you don't shut this down, I will make your life miserable. Jan is going to file a stalking injunction, and he contested it. Jan thinks that he did this because, like you just said, the two would have to come face to face for this injunction meeting. Unfortunately, and infuriatingly, Birchtold was allowed to question Jan about her feelings of unsafety around him. It is so emotional, but Jan is so strong that she looks him in the eye and just gives it to him in a courtroom. Um, and they def- they have a video of that in the documentary. It's just, it's incredible. And Birchtold is continuing, and you see it through the questions he asks her and his tone while he's speaking to her. He's still trying to manipulate her. Oh, yeah, In 2005. Crazy. So usually when you get a stalking injunction, the most that it can be for is three years. However, the judge was so moved by the case and so disgusted that she issued the injunction for the remainder of Birchtold's life. For all future speaking events, the Bikers Against Child Abuse, or BACA, would offer protection to her and her mother. 
It was very nice. During one event, a member of the organization identified Birchtold. He said, that's him. And he jumped on the hood of Birchtold's Dodge van. Birchtold is going to stop abruptly and the biker rolls off the car and was injured. Birchtold was arrested on site. At the time, he was in possession of a gun, a violation of his probation, and he was charged with three felonies and two misdemeanors. Robert Birchtold was found guilty and sentenced to prison time. Not wanting to go to jail, he took an entire bottle of his heart medication and washed it down with Kahlua and milk. He died on November 11, 2005. Jan was not sad that he died. She was happy that he could never make anyone suffer again. And this, the family, the Broberg family, is still a very close unit, and they are all together, and they've loved and grown past this um, through a lot of therapy, healing, writing these books, being a part of these documentaries, um, making their suffering kind of give back and inform people what could happen while you're not watching those around your family. Absolutely. And they're very lucky. I mean, I hate to say it this way, but they're lucky that she came back, not once, but twice. Twice. And she also was eventually over time became herself again through a lot of healing and and their work together. Yeah. And she became an advocate. So, I mean, it's... She did. That's something that's positive. She also became a really... Really, she she's an actress. She's a pretty popular actress. She's been in Criminal Minds, Everwood. I think she's in. So, Jan Broberg is is pretty successful in life, and she did that. She overcame everything that happened to her, and I'm glad that she can have a happy life. But it's hard to ever move past abuse. But it's good that she's getting her message out, and I just can't. This guy is unbelievable, unrelenting, and it just goes to show that sometimes um, we may think someone's rehabilitated, but sometimes when you're a predator, you're a predator for life. This is... Clearly. (laughs) Yeah, a very serious case of that. (laughs) But we really hope you enjoyed this episode. This is a great story that we wanted to bring to you as soon as we heard about it, so... Um, If you really like the episode and you like the show, you can leave us a great review on any podcast platform that you listen to. And if you feel generous enough to donate to us, you can do so at patreon.com slash true crime couple. All right. Bye, guys. Bye, guys.